If you are new, this is the part uh, of our service where we reflect upon a passage of the Bible, the Scriptures, and uh, we are in the third week of a three-week series trying to explore who we are called to be to the city we find ourselves in. Uh, last couple of weeks, for those of you who weren't here, I'll give you a little bit of context. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus himself went to the people who are generally invisible in his culture. He went to the blind man begging at the side of the road, and we too, following Jesus, need to learn to go to the margins, to the invisible places of the city where people that everyone else has forgotten uh, are, because Jesus never did. Second. Uh, in our series. Last week, we talked about someone who was part of the oppressive wealthy 1%, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And we realized that even they, as guilty as they are and may be, even they are not beyond the reach of Jesus's love. And we talked a lot about coming to Jesus with our sin and leaving our sin there. This week, we are not looking at the invisible or the oppressive wealthy. This week, we're looking at the people most broken most addicted, most enslaved by their own life circumstances and their own sin. We are looking at the Samaritan woman. And so if you've got a bulletin, turn to the back panel where we will be reading verses 7 to 30 together. And here to help us with the reading of God's Word, Hannah. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 4, verses 7 to 30. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. 
When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was the first year of this uh, of uh, us replanting this church called Grace Toronto. We were renting a space at Young and Eglinton. We did not have, yet have services in the morning. We had them in the evening because it was all we could find. We were trying to figure out what kind of church we were going to be. And while studying the book of Mark, we noticed one evening that someone came in and joined the 40 or so of us that there were. This person was clearly inebriated and slurring, and people took notice of them because they were different. I thought that they were coming in as sometimes people do who wander in, who are perhaps from the streets and need a cup of coffee or a cookie or something, and we gave him, I think, a gift card for food, and we gave him coffee, and I thought he would probably leave after he'd received what we had to give him. But to my surprise, after the sermon, we had a time of Q&A, as we still do, and he put his hand up. He was at the back. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, I recently lost my job. I'm unemployed. I'm living on the streets, and I'm gay. Is there a place in this church for me? He was asking the question that Jesus wants us to ask as we look at his response to a woman who has basically the same question. Is there any room for me? Here, Jesus is traveling through Samaria. Samaria is between northern Israel and Jerusalem. It used to be part of Israel. When Israel was conquered by the Babylonians and a bunch of Israelites were relocated forcibly to Babylon... The land was empty and got resettled by the Samaritans. They were thieves of Jewish land in the eyes and minds of Jewish people. Not only that, but they had adopted a kind of Judaism that was a corruption in Jewish minds, a bastardization, a blasphemous corruption of Jewish understanding of God. These people, these thieves who've taken our land, who've corrupted our faith, that's what Jewish people thought of Samaritans. They would avoid going to it if at all possible. Jesus went right into it. Jews avoided Samaritans as a rule. Jewish rabbis as a rule, to show their devotion to the true God, would refuse to eat with or touch the same Um, pots or cups of a Samaritan. Jewish rabbis, as a rule to show their devotion to God, would also not talk to women who are not part of their family or who are not their wives or their kids. And yet, here is this Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, astounding everyone by meeting with, initiating conversation with, and revealing himself to this cult-following land-stealing, 
Samaritan woman. Jesus shows us something of himself here that we need to hear while we're here. And that is this. Jesus loves us where we are. Even in the depths of our sin, he loves us there. But he loves us so much that he loves us out of where we are. Because where we are is enslaving. And thirdly, Jesus loves us to himself and freedom. He loves us where we are. He loves us out of where we are. He loves us to himself. Let's look at those three here. In verse 7, that first paragraph, that long paragraph, a woman is coming to draw water. Now, it's the time of day that we need to recognize. It's the third hour in Jewish terminology. That's noon. So now we need to enter this moment. You're a Samaritan woman. You've had five husbands. Five. You're now living with someone who isn't your own husband. There's something darkly tragic here and darkly addictive here. If you've had five husbands, you've probably been used and cast aside by men because generally speaking in that culture, it was the men who sued for divorce. And so she was probably married, used for a while, and then cast aside only to be taken up by another man and cast aside. But she's also, we find out, living outside of wedlock. This is a place of total immorality in this day and total scandal. And so we see this woman coming at noon, not at dusk, when all the other women come. Because women would gather together and come in the cool of the early evening to draw water, to socialize, and for protection. She went alone in the heat of day. Why did she go alone? To be alone. In her guilt and her shame, she wanted no one to see her. She went alone. She's trapped in some cycle that is probably three parts abuse by men and one part the addictive inability to break this abuse by men. And so she goes alone, the refuse of her city. And who does she see? A Jewish man. Don't know if she knows he's a rabbi, but she knows Jewish people do not have any dealings with Samaritans. And so to the well she comes feeling the judgment that is not spoken, and then he speaks, and he speaks not judgment, but grace. Will you draw water for me? Now, he was thirsty, I'm sure. He was weary, but he was also doing something very deliberate. You see, as we see the disciples asking why he's talking to a woman, there are questions that would come up in the mind. Why would a Jewish person risk their reputation to talk to a Samaritan? Why would a Jewish rabbi risk their reputation by talking to a woman? Why would a Jewish rabbi risk their whole reputation by meeting with a Samaritan woman? Why would this Jewish rabbi, with all of his countercultural teachings at stake, talk to this immoral, addictive? Samaritan woman. It makes no sense. She's a moral leper, outcast, unclean, and Jesus breaks all of those barriers and comes all the way to her and says, will you give me a drink? And she's stunned. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Verse 9. 
Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you'd have asked him, he would have given you living water. He knows she's actually thirsty. Deeply thirsty in her soul. Whatever all those relationships with men have done for her, they haven't quenched her deepest needs. Because look at how she responds. Give me that water so I don't have to thirst again. He says, go. Call your husband. Boom. She has no husband. He knows she has no husband. She is now face to face with the depth of her own choices, her own sin, her own brokenness. And she's face to face with some Jewish man who doesn't care about all that because he's loving her right where she is. And I want you to know, wherever you are in your journey of life, wherever you are in your journey of faith, he's the same Jesus who loves you right where you are right now. You might be in the depth of sin, brokenness, addiction. He loves you there. We are all like her to him. We are all broken. We are all idolaters. She had some kind of an idol. We don't know exactly what it was to men. But he's not afraid to meet with her, not afraid of his reputation, nothing. Implication. We who follow Jesus need to follow Jesus in this. We need to meet people where they are, not geographically. I'm not asking you to go and meet a drug dealer and help them deal drugs. But meet people wherever they are spiritually. Love them where they are spiritually. Don't wait for them to clean up their moral and spiritual act. I know when I was interested in Christianity in law school and I was getting very close to becoming a Christian, I thought I had to do a three or four month sort of spiritual cleanup job, you know? Stop getting drunk, stop chasing girls, start praying prayers, go to some church for a while. I thought I had to clean up my act. Jesus wouldn't come all the way down to me. And finally, someone who struggled with the same kind of things I did turned to Ephesians chapter 2 and said, read this. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God that no one should boast. What do you need to accept a gift? Do you need three months of self-improvement? You just need to believe it's a gift and take it. And I looked at him and I took it. Jesus met me where I was. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, I want to give you, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, but I want to chart out what your spiritual journey usually looks like. It usually looks like this. You start out being intrigued. You have Christian friends or something. They seem to be mm, interesting, different. Uh, Something provokes curiosity in you, and you wonder if God is really worthy of your time and your attention. And then as your spiritual journey gets deeper and you start to think about who Jesus is and the depth of his love and the depth of his spiritual beauty, what the Bible calls holiness, your spiritual journey will begin to change and the question will switch. It'll go from, is God worthy of my time to am I worthy of God's love? 
And you can tell where you are on your spiritual journey by which question you're asking right now. At that moment in law school, I was asking, am I worthy of God's love? And the answer in this text is, he comes all the way down. He met me in the depth of my sin, my addiction to anger, my addiction to pornography, and he will meet you where you are too. Christians, what would you say if you were me and you were at Young and Eglinton and you had that question from that man? I remember what I said because I had just been studying this passage. I said, Jesus will meet you where you are. You are welcome at this church anytime. We said it then. We must say it again today. Jesus comes and meets people where they are. They don't need to clean themselves up first. We as a church need to go and learn to do that. Love them in their sin. Second point Jesus didn't just meet them where they are. He didn't just love them where they were. He didn't just love them in their sin. He loved them enough to love them out. He loved her out of her sin. So verse 17, we pick up the story. She's been confronted by the question about her husband. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now watch what happens. He has just put his finger on her idol. So what does she do? She does what we do when God puts his finger on the thing that we're holding on to as our functional savior. She must have hated loneliness or something because maybe that's why she loved men or needed them. Some of us, our personal hell is poverty, so we cling to financial freedom as our functional God. This is what happens when God touches that thing that you cannot let go of. Look, she switches the topic. <laughs> now, let's have a theological debate here. I see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is one of the most jarring left turns in, in, the, in conversations that we've seen anywhere in the scriptures. It sure looks like she's changing the topic. Well, Jesus meets her again where she is. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. In your question, in your debate between the Jews and the Samaritans, the Jews are right. Salvation is from them. But they're not quite right either. Let me fill in the gap. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. There's a lot of scholarly debate over these words. It would take hours to unveil it. It might actually be better translated, worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We're not sure, but we know the main thrust of what Jesus is saying. You need to worship the true God from the inside whether it's the Spirit of God helping you or whether it's the Spirit helping your spirit and your spirit worships the true God, from the inside, you need to actually love God. And in truth, you need to love the right God. You don't get to choose your own 
God, you have to choose the God who's revealing himself to us. And what is Jesus doing? He's astonishing this woman a second time. He's not only loved her inner sin, he's loving her enough to put his finger on the thing that's got her. Her relationship to men. She's not free. She's thirsty. And she's a slave. Something has captured her. And by the way, she's not alone. We tend to think, oh, you know, these poor people, it's this patriarchal society that has, that has enslaved her. We, with our modern, much more progressive societies, we don't have these issues of, of enslavement like they did. Really? In her now classic book, The Beauty Myth, third wave feminist Naomi Wolf describes our present cultural moment with regard to women and standards of beauty. Here are her words. During the last decade, women breached the power structures. Meanwhile, eating disorders have risen exponentially. Pornography has become the main media category. Ahead of films and music combined, 33,000 American women told researchers they would rather lose 10 to 15 pounds than achieve any other life goal. More women have more money and power and scope and legal recognition than we have ever had before. But in terms of how we feel about ourselves physically, we may actually be worse off than our unliberated grandmothers. She finishes her thought with this. Inside the majority of the West's controlled, attractive, successful, working women, there is a secret afterlife that's poisoning our freedom. It is a dark vein of self-hatred, physical obsession, terror of aging, and dread of lost control. Does that sound like freedom to you? This woman isn't the only woman who's been enslaved. Here's the dirty little secret about those things that we value most highly, that we look most to to give us meaning that make us feel whole and alive and fulfilled. Careers, resumes, degrees, relationships, kids, those things that we center our life and sense of well-being around, they still leave us thirsty. They don't feed our souls. And they capture us and begin to bend us to their wills. Many of us become functional slaves to our companies because our idol is our career. We know it. We don't stop it. Many of us are enslaved to our over-desires, what the Bible calls over-desires, epithumia, what we often translate in the Bible into English as lusts, an over-desire for power, pleasure, financial wealth. We've given our lives over to the pursuit of these things. We've given these Pursuits, respectable names. I want financial freedom. I want social capital. Those are good things. Ambition is a good thing, as we said last week. But why you do it determines if it's corrupting or if it's beautiful. Are you achieving this for your own glory and your own power or for the good of the city and the glory of God? You know the difference. Because when the thing has you, 
when you've got an over-desire and you've given it too much, then losing that promotion undoes you. Having that financial deal go south derails you, often for months. You know your relationship has gotten its hooks into your soul when you can't have them break up with you. You know your kids have their tender hooks into you when their success or failure feels like it's yours. Why do you need them? Because you're thirsty. You're looking for something to make you feel whole. You're looking to something to deliver you from whatever false, whatever hell you think is in front of you. Her hell might have been loneliness. Yours might be poverty or insignificance. But whatever your functional hell is, you have a functional God that you are going to have deliver you from it. And it will, it will do its work of bending you. And Jesus comes along and says, I love you enough to say, come to me. You need freedom. That thing isn't a pleasure. That thing is a cancer and a slave master. Jesus doesn't just love us in our sin. He loves us enough to try and bring us out of our sin. Because being in sin is being a slave. John eight thirty four. I quoted last week, but it bears repeating. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus loved her enough to not leave her there. So he confronts her about her slavery and her sin. She deflects it. He takes a moment. He answers her question. And then he says, come. Come to me. You must worship in spirit and in truth. And she goes, okay, hold on. You're not who I thought you were. I thought you were a Jewish man. Then I thought you were a prophet. Now I'm beginning to wonder. And she says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. You can tell she's beginning to wonder, is this who that man is? He knows too much about me. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. What is he saying? Come to me. Come out of your sin. Come out of your false gods to your true God. Come out of your false salvation to your true Savior. Your true problem isn't that you need a better career. Your true problem is that you're alienated from God by your own selfishness and need to be saved from your own sin. Now look what happens. Jesus loved her in her sin. He came to where she was. Jesus loved her enough to love her out of her sin. He took her from where she was to himself. Now he loves her to freedom. Last paragraph. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. See their attitude? Typical Jewish attitude. What's he doing talking with a woman? But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? That's what their minds thought. That was their mindset. They didn't ask. Not sure why exactly. They're stunned by what Jesus is doing. You see? They don't get him. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. I don't know who they are. Is it half the town? But it's a lot of people. Okay? 
What is Jesus doing? He's freeing her. This is no mere man. This is God's anointed, God's appointed Messiah, the Savior of the world. He reveals himself to her, and then it crashes down on her. This isn't some Jewish man who's met me where I am. This is a Jewish man who knows me at the deepest levels. This is, this is the God-man. This is the Messiah who loved me in my sin, who loved me enough to point out my sin, and who loved me enough to say I am the Messiah, to reveal himself as the Savior of my sin, even me. And so now here the narrator in this last paragraph wants you to look at the effect that Jesus' love has on her because he wants you to see three quick contrasts. The first one and the obvious one is the difference between the Samaritan woman at the beginning of our narrative and the Samaritan woman at the end. You see, at the beginning, she comes in the heat of the day to be alone, filled with shame and guilt. She's hiding from the city she lives in. Now here at the end, what is she doing? She goes back to the exact same people she was hiding from openly. She came alone, hiding her sin. She went confessing and acknowledging her sin and saying, this man knows all about my past. Could he be the Messiah? But note the narrative detail in here. She left her water pot. Narratives back in this day rarely shared these kind of little historical details. Why do you think John included it? Scholars have a variety of guesses. It was filled with water. She didn't want to bring it. She knew she was coming back. She trusted Jesus with it. All those are probably true. But what does the water pot, in the context of this discussion Jesus is having with her, what does the water pot symbolize? Thirst. She doesn't need it. She's found what she's been thirsting for. It's Jesus. And it's freed her to be able to go and face her guilt and shame because she doesn't have it anymore. She has been freed. Implications. I don't know where you are in your journey of life, but this can be true of you. No matter how messed up your life has been, no matter how much guilt and shame you may presently be carrying, no matter how skeptical you may be about this Jewish man, he's willing to meet you where you are, love you as you are, love you out of where you are, and love you to him in freedom. That's the gospel. But there's a second contrast here between her and the disciples, (laughs) right? She goes... And they went. They're his followers, but they're not getting him. Look at the questions that they're asking about him meeting with her. And what did they go to town to do? Buy food. What did they actually do? They bought food. What did she do? She went to her people and said, here's the true food that will feed your soul. Here's the bread of life. His name is Jesus. Why don't you come meet him? You see the contrast that's being made? She gets Jesus and his love, and they don't really. 
When Jesus' love and unconditional grace crashes down upon you, something amazing happens. The thing that was bending you to its will doesn't have the power anymore. Your need for it is broken because a deeper love has filled that spot. And your identity is now based on an unstoppable, unmovable, unconditional, unconditional, irresistible love that God has for you for all eternity. And that love is better than whatever your career or your bank book or your relationships can give you. There's a final contrast that's latent in the text, not quite as obvious, and that's between the, but it does become obvious in the next paragraph in John 4 when Jesus discourses with the disciples about the meaning of all this. Jesus and the disciples are contrasted. They went into town to buy food. They bought food and didn't tell anyone about Jesus. They questioned the woman and why he was speaking to her. Why is he speaking to this this Samaritan woman? Now enter the moment again. If you're an original reader, you would probably enter the moment by thinking this is a fairly small town and this is one well. There's probably some kind of a trail or a footpath, probably not a Roman road, but some kind of you know, footpath for humans to go between the town and the well. It's not that big. It's probably maybe the size of this aisle at best. And so you look at the way he's constructed the narrative. They leave for town and suddenly a woman from the town shows up. What's the obvious implication the disciples crossed paths with the woman while they were going to the town and she was leaving it. Based on their comments, what do you think they did when they saw her? Huh? A Samaritan woman. Oh, I've got to stay clear of her. Oh, coming at noon. Not when most women are coming. Oh, she's got something shameful. Probably something immoral. Yeah? So they would have just stepped aside maybe parted in the middle while she walks between them, feeling her shame and her guilt intensified. And then they would have gone to the town. What did Jesus do when he saw that person and recognized all those things? He moved toward her in grace and love and compassion. People in church sin tends to make us shrink back, but it tends to make Jesus move in. We tend to be afraid that sin will pollute us. Jesus is confident that his grace will cleanse us. You see the difference? There are a quote from Sibbs, Richard Sibbs, great Puritan theologian on the cover. Little typo, I'll fix it for you. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says it well. Second part of the verse, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The disciples don't get yet the depth of Jesus' love. They didn't think it was for the Samaritan woman. They never stopped. They didn't think it was for the Samaritans. They never gave it to them. They don't get the depth of Jesus' love. And oftentimes, we don't either. You know why? Because we don't really think through what the gospel is. Jesus, the consummate, perfect Jewish person, the sinless son of God, the innocent rabbi, 
the great final prophet of the Jewish people, would himself become the consummate Samaritan, the accursed, theologically wrong, idolatrous, immoral woman on the cross. In John chapter 8, a few chapters later, the Jews will call him such. They will say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan, accursed by God, and have a demon? Jesus allowed them to say that. And then Jesus spent his life and walked to the cross between Jerusalem and Golgotha. There's a road. And he walked that road alone, dragging his cross. And between He was between people who sat there and judged him. As the Samaritan woman walked alone to the well and found living water, Jesus walked alone from Jerusalem to Calvary with people around him judging him like the disciples did. But he didn't bear his own guilt and shame. He bore hers. And he bore ours. And he became accursed by God. Galatians says he became a curse for us. He became like the Samaritan woman on our behalf. When you get this, that the distance between you and her is zero, morally speaking, and the grace of God that he gave to her is exactly the grace of God he gives to you, then you will move from being like the disciples, judging and separating to being like Jesus, moving in compassion to the broken and the guilty and the immoral because when the gospel comes in and frees you, the gospel moves out in love and compassion from you. Let us be that kind of church for this kind of city. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you that you are alive and that your grace is still here for everybody. I pray for those who are here who are not yet Christian that they would realize that Jesus is ready to meet them right where they are and love them as they are because he died for them and he offers them the forgiveness of sins as a gift if they will trust in him. And I pray that people even today would trust in you and ask you to come in to their life. And for those of us who are Christians, I pray that we would be renewed in seeing this infinite, beautiful, unconditional love of Jesus and learn to become like him, meeting people where they are, but helping people to move from where they are to where Jesus is, that they might find freedom. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have time for some questions or comments. If you have a question, you may put up your hand. Or you may text. We always give preference to those who have the courage to put up their hands to have a first crack at it. We may not get to your questions if they're texted. I already have nine here, so you get a sense of what may or may not happen. So, yes, in the back. Back on the top. You have a question, yes. How can we reckon, uh, reconcile free will and responsibilities when sometimes... Finish that second sentence, please. 
How do I reconcile the fact that I sometimes know the right thing to do and don't do it? Great question. Um, one of the things that most Christians don't really understand is, and I didn't either, and so I'm going to try and explain this quickly because it came up twice in the early service and so I think it's at the heart of what this is. Most of us view sin. That's the Christian word for doing something that is against God's will. As something pleasurable and fun, but we know it's wrong. And so it does have a pleasurable attraction to us. And you're right, it does. There's no question. Most of us conceive, most Christians conceive of victory over sin or progress in it as having greater moral willpower to say no to it even though it's good and fun and pleasurable. It is the victory of duty and moral discipline and a sense of what's right and truth and logic over what you enjoy. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this. You love sin. It's this beautiful iPhone. You're already chuckling because you already know how old this iPhone is. (laughs) When this iPhone came out, people lined up for hours for it. Yeah? They loved it. And then they looked at their pocketbook and said, I won't do it as an act of moral discipline. But now you don't even look at this iPhone as something you want because this iPhone's out. (laughs) And it's younger and better and stronger and more beautiful and it has displaced this actually there's about three generations that have displaced this (laughs) three years ago you would get my joke much better this displaced this as the object of your affection okay that's the gospel when the love of God and the grace of God and the beauty of God through the cross of Christ and what he's done begins to invade your soul This which looked so beautiful gets displaced by this because this doesn't look so lovely anymore. That's the gospel. When the love of Jesus becomes the loveliness of Jesus and you just want him, then you are understanding what the gospel is. It's about a love affair between God and the false gods that will fool you and fail you. And if there's no other God, they sure look good. But when the real God comes and you recognize it, they just fade away and become the text phone, not your phone. (laughs) Make sense? I'll, I'll take other questions later because I want to honor your time. Great question. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took up the issue of what it would mean to follow him. And he said, this is my body given for you no conditions wherever you are whoever you are whatever you have done however many times you have failed I will meet you there this is my body given as a gift for you do this in memory of me remind yourselves replenish yourselves refresh yourselves in the unconditionality of my gift of my life on the cross to you A little while later, he took a cup and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant 
in my blood. By which he meant, I'm giving my blood as a sacrifice to pay the price for your guilt and your shame. I've become a curse for you. My blood will cover your sin. I will be your scapegoat. And he said of his body, and he said of his blood, do this in memory of me. Why? Because if we don't keep remembering the, Ill, the limitless, infinite, unstoppable, unconditional grace of God for us, we will forget this, and this will begin to look good again. What we're about to do is not just a memorial moment. It is food for your soul and drink for your spiritual thirst. Feed and drink on the unstoppable, undeniable, beautiful grace of God. Feed on Christ. If you're here and you're still investigating the Christian faith, if you are not a baptized believer in Jesus yet, there are prayers in the bulletin for you to read. But for those of us for whom Christ has died and been risen and Christ has been invited into our life by faith alone. This is our moment of feeding on his grace and drinking so that our spiritual thirst for grace and love is quenched. I'm going to pray and then the table will be open. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness to us. Now come by your spirit and take the work of the cross and make it so real and so vivid in our lives. Let us see Jesus risen in heaven with the scars. Let us be like Doubting Thomas, feeling the scars and be going, behold, my Lord and my God, give us the wonder of this moment that we might be refreshed in your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The table is open. You may take the, um, the bread is uh, gluten-free and the wine is darker than the grape juice. Enjoy. Enjoy.